Welcome to The Lisa Show. It's okay to admit that school can be boring sometimes. I remember being a student and struggling to remember anything I learned from an especially boring class. <laughs> and I'm, you Yeah, know, you love learning. I love, a, a lifelong I, lover yeah. of learning. But I, but I feel you. There were those classes where it was like, okay, can I please get through this? And, and am I going to get through And it? I think as you get older, you think, am I going to get through this? Because you're trying to find a connection. You get a little bit better at that as you get older. But retaining information and performing well on exams is harder when you find either the material or the way that it's presented boring. So to counter this this problem, neuroscientists tell us to engage our emotions when studying and try to relate the topics we discuss in the classroom with our day-to-day life. And when I was in my tr- teacher training classes, they told us the same thing, like, mm-hmm. you've got to find a connection, you know, show them why it's important. Um, it's difficult to do, but here to tell us what that looks like and why it's important is neuroscientist Mary Helen Imordino yang Welcome. Hi. So I want to start off first with this idea of engaging our students' emotions. What does that mean? Yeah, so that is a super question, Lisa, because actually what we're learning about teenagers' brains is that maybe engaging emotions is actually a different thing than we thought. Um, You know, we think about engaging emotions as just like, um, having a big reaction to something, like mm-hmm. something that's really like in your face, right? Like <laughs> right. Really shocking people with something like that grabs them. Or we think about it as um, kind of almost tricking yourself into like making it, you know, quote unquote relevant. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to need this math in my real life. And you're right. like, not really, right? Like, <laughs> like, oh, come on, teenagers don't buy that anymore, right? Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah, show me where, right? Yeah. Um, but what, what we're learning actually is that, Making things engaging is really about making them relevant, but relevant is something different than we used to think. Hmm. So what relevance is, is not just that you can see the direct connection to like utility in your day-to-day life. Like, oh, you know, learn how to do this math and you'll be able to balance your checkbook. Okay, yeah, you need to be able to balance your checkbook, but that's like, that's like lower R relevance. Mm -hmm. What big R relevance really is, is a set of kind of emotional feelings that are actually invoked inside the very basic survival-related structures in your brain and brainstem that we share with alligators, right? You know, this very, very basic feeling of being like really alive and aware and awake and connected to what you're thinking about because what you're thinking about really feels like it's part of the power of being you. To know this is like just a very powerful feeling and, and that is what real engagement is. Hmm. And how do you get that? You really get that not so much by choosing topics only that are like directly useful in your daily life. Like that's kind of the cheap way to get it. And mm-hmm. that's okay. But how do you do that for things like math or physics or things right. that really have to show it? Right. You get it by the way in which you engage young people in the thinking process. So what happens is when kids move from thinking about really big, powerful ideas, like ideas that feel really insightful, like you know things you didn't know before, and when you look out at the world, you have like a new view onto, well, that's why the stars are out at night, or whatever it is, right? If you connect these really big ideas back to the little skills you need to have, right, like the math, the reading, the vocabulary, right, and then take those back out into these big ideas again, by having these conversations about the really big ideas, that, it's that move back and forth that we think kind of like, you know, ramps up the brain, like in this resonance pattern mm-hmm. that makes you feel like, oh, my gosh, this is really relevant, even though it's not directly, like, useful in your daily, daily life. And we see this in kids, um, in teenagers who are really doing exceptional work in school, right? And these are kids from schools. Um, there are schools like this in New York City. There are schools like this in Los Angeles. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're scattered throughout the country. But schools where kids are doing big projects, especially where they're really invested in the topic and they really care about like learning more about it. And as they become more and more expert in their topic, they, they tell us that they're, they kind of show us by the way they talk to us about it, that they're moving back and forth from like, wow, this big, powerful idea of you know, whatever the idea is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 
social justice or educational, you know, access or how, uh, you know, lead gets in your water or not, or, you know, all these kinds of things, these big, powerful ideas. And then they move back to like, and so the chemistry is like this. And as they move back and forth, that's what then they spontaneously blurt out to us. Like, it feels so relevant to my life. Like, you're like, really? Fractions are relevant to your life? Because you've like got really excited about the idea of infinity? Oh, wow. You know yeah. So it's, it's a very different way of thinking about what relevance is. It's really about engaging people with big ideas and giving them the, the opportunity to, you know, become really deeply interested in something and to become an expert on it, maybe even more of an expert than the teacher, you know? Wow. And when you do that, it feels really empowering, and that's where the feeling of relevance okay. starts to get that's generated the in the brain. We're talking with yeah. Mary Helen Amordino Yang about engaging our students with emo- or em- engaging emotions with students and and how uh, I mean like it really feels like uh, ownership personal ownership um, being yeah, able to right. personal ownership that's a great way to say it Richie to to get in, to get in on this and I and we've sort of couched this in the idea of the educational system I think that this is a great lesson for any and all people but parents listening to this to get kids yeah. to sort of buy in within things within their home I mean these things very much apply. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is not something that's unique to the four walls of a school, right? This is this is how we become really invested in working hard and 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 applying what we learn in the world and really, you know, the way I think about it, it's like helping kids take what they're learning and build that not just into like a, you know, knowledge that's like separate from who they are as a person, but like feeling like this knowledge is what makes me a really like efficacious person in the world, you know, like, like if you think about preschoolers, right, how many mm-hmm. kids preschoolers, you know, just become super fascinated with some topic like, like dinosaurs, mm-hmm. right? You know, is it that we think all our four-year-olds were just hoping they're all going to be paleontologists? You know, no, of course not. Right. The reason we get so excited when they are really into dinosaurs is because they learn all this vocabulary mm-hmm. that the parents are like the tyrant of what, you know, and they get like really expert and they know all the parts and, and the feeling of becoming an expert is the developmental process that really is engagement. That's it. And it drives itself forward. And as you start to experience that in one domain, then you learn almost like a proclivity or a disposition for, for becoming curious and becoming engaged in other domains. And that's how you learn to be a lifelong learner. Do you feel, I mean, I think that so many parents try to do this with their kids, you know, and, yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes I feel like we as parents sometimes get in the way of that with our good intentions about what yeah. it means to be a good student or engaged. What are those things oh, that you yeah. see that, that parents and teachers do unknowingly that, that interrupts this, this kind of I natural, do. like love of learning? I do. I do. I mean, God, I was a teacher too. I taught seventh grade science and stuff. I mean, I get it. I totally get it. And I'm a parent, right? I have two teenagers right mm-hmm. now. You know, it's like, Uh, I totally get that. And I really do think that we adults often get in the way of kids really genuinely developing these skills because we have so many ideas about what kids are supposed to know and what they're supposed to be interested in and what counts as, quote, unquote, a good student, right? Mm -hmm. Or, quote, unquote, like a good person. And, (laughs) And we push those onto our kids. And, and really, it's a process of helping the kids find themselves in the world, like learn how to become really interested in things and letting them follow those interests. And then you sort of slide in the, the academic skills and the scholarly skills along the way. Like, you know, if you're learning dinosaurs or whatever, you're learning vocabulary, you're learning how to talk, you're learning how to think scientifically, you're learning about categorizing you're learning about evolution you're learning about biology right there's there's like like what does it eat you know there's so much information in that that you're learning and that's real information we don't we don't think of that as like oh that makes you a good student but that actually is what makes you a good learner for life and so much of what we do i I, know this is controversial and, and you know like you can you can argue with me but so much of what we do i think in our traditional education system um, you know, through no fault of teachers, right, they're taught to do this, is, is that we directly institute policies that undermine this. Mm. We require particular classes yeah. at particular times. You are 12, you should be doing Algebra 1. You're like, well, really? Like, you know what I mean? Does it have to be at 12? Could you do it at 9 or at 14 if you're a different, you know? 
Yeah. And, and we then take everything you do and we assign a standardized grade to it. You get a B. You get a B plus. Oh, well, because your, your work's better than her work, right? It's like, well, thanks a lot. You just took everything that I poured my heart into and reduced it to yeah. this dumb number. And on the other hand, you get an A plus, does the same thing. It says everything that I was really interested in, it's all just about this, this little letter that I wrote <laughs> on my quote-unquote transcript. I mean, it's not really about me and who I actually am as a person, right? So we really directly undermine motivation for deep thinking, I think. I mean, I know this is like, this is, you know, we can argue. But I think we undermine motivation for deep thinking and for engagement by the way that we structure our education system around grading and testing and things like that. So, so, so opponents, I think, would then ask, well, what do you, what do you want, Mary Helen? You want, <laughs> you want a p- bunch yeah. of people to come to a place and do whatever they feel like the wind blows them and, you know, yeah, learn, well, learn all this. They've got to get into college. You know, and what how, about how do we give them grades? Right. Well, yeah. I'll tell you something. Colleges are starting much, much more to look at kids' whole profile, right? Yeah. They want to understand, is this kid really engaged with something? Is, are they really dedicated and interested in things? Can they stick to those interests and actually stand by them? And even when it gets frustrating or difficult or they have setbacks, you know, can they engage with their peers? Can they engage in conversations where they hear other people's perspectives? So a lot of the traditional things that we um, associate with, quote, unquote, success in getting into college are, are really starting to lose some of their some of their shininess. I mean, you know, uh, the state of California, for example, has um, removed uh, the need for standardized SAT tests for all of their state universities, right? I mean, yeah. these things are starting to get taken away because people realize they're very limiting and they give you a very limited slice of what a kid actually thinks like and what they actually are inclined toward. And, and frankly, it does not even predict how they're going to succeed in college. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you, you ask a really more fundamental question, Richie, which is how do we hold people accountable? How do we hold teachers and schools and kids and families accountable for the things that their kids know and learn to do? Because, you know, clearly this does not mean anything goes, right? Right. And, and here, this is where I think the new science can really inform the answer to that question. Um, because what we're looking for is not, you know, a, you know, check off this box of knowledge, check, check, check. Although you do need to know those things, you want to take it, we want to start taking it to the next level and think about how do kids build knowledge? Like what kind of thinkers are they? And so there are really great models for Mm -hmm. how to do this. And when it's done well, it's incredibly powerful and successful with all kinds of students across demographics. And so certain kinds of, for example, project-based learning, right, where teachers bring in expert panels and they engage with kids over time around their work and the kids defend their work and they explain their work and they talk about it in a much more process oriented way about like, here's what I was thinking. So I got interested in this and then I kept studying it and I realized, well, no, I don't really actually understand the chemistry of the lead in the water. So can you please like give me a chemistry book? I need to go back and take that class so I can start to understand, well, why does it hurt brain development to have this in our water and, and then go back and think about the biology and the kid becomes the driver who's organizing it and presenting it, and their work is, is judged, right, based on the quality of their knowledge and thinking and, and, and engagement with complex ideas, rather than just with, like, how do you spit back to me right. the questions that I've designed <laughs> yeah. that you have to choose A, B, C, D, or E, and if you can, then I say you're done, and if you can't, then I say you're not done or you failed, right? right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something else I think is really, really powerful here is that we're showing in our lab now, we've been following, uh, you know, uh, teenagers uh, for, you know, five years mm-hmm. as they grow up. And at the beginning of the studies, we um, engaged these teens in co- private conversations um, about the ways they think about the world. You know, wh- what do they see in their community? What could they do to make their community uh, a better place, right? For kids who live in a community with, with crime, you know, why do you think these things happen? For kids who live in other kinds of, you know, communities with other kinds of struggles, why do you think um, people litter or why do you think, right, that these Mm -hmm. things are the way they are? And talk to them about that. Talk to them about how they make friends and and what they care about and what they dream of for themselves as an adult. What do they want to be? And teenagers at 14 and 15 years old 
and this is like also we we me- we measure the kids IQ and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's above IQ. Like so this IQ does not explain this, okay? Like teenagers who are looking for the bigger meaning, who who are trying to figure out like the system level of how things work and not just like, well, because she's a bad person and so she threw the the cup out the window or Mm -hmm. or those guys are bad, you know, they're in a gang and they did this and so they got in trouble and they have to take the consequences, which is all true, but that's not the full picture of how this happens at at the sort of societal level. And kids who are trying to figure out, well, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my life's work? What does this mean for you know, how I understand the world and myself in it, those big curiosities and dispositions for understanding more and learning more, like I said, are not explained by IQ. They're above IQ, and they actually predict the growth of those youth's brains over time. So kids who do this, we can predict that two years later when we have you back to the lab, we're going to see more growth in that child's brain, that teenager's brain. And that growth in the brain in turn the degree to which they do that explains statistically in other words it predicts how happy they are and how fulfilled and how much they like themselves as a young adult how wow. much they do how well they do in school oh, how much they amazing. like their work whatever it is they're doing at age 20 21 22 are they in school are they in work but that's not as important to us as do you like it is this what you always dreamed of for yourself you know is this a fulfilling life for you do you like yourself? Do you like your partner or, or friends? You know what I mean? How happy are you? Those questions are actually predicted via the brain development three years before, which in turn is predicted, you know, by four, ninth graders and 10th graders, the way they talk about how curious they are about the world and, and how they try to relate the things they notice in the world or they see in the news or they learn at church or, you know, all the ways that kids are engaging with the community as they stop to make sense out of that, when they make big connections to big ideas about what it all means and what's right and wrong and, and you know, really start to build for themselves who they want to be and what they believe in, those kids are the ones that are growing their brains over time. And, and this is across demographic lines. It's across uh, ethnic groups. It's across socioeconomic status. So it's not about how much money or education the kids' parents have as much as it's about the dispositions that the kids bring, which, of, of course, are also part of how they're parented, right? But yeah. it's not about money necessarily, and it's not about, uh, and it's not about you know, um, educational achievement necessarily. It's about these big sort of inclinations to think about, well, so what does the world really work like? And who am I in it? And what do I care about? Wow, and why those do big I knowledge that? ideas. Those it's a, big ideas. Yeah, that's it, right, ideas. It's exciting to hear. That. It's exciting to hear you speak so passionately about I love it. Uh, Doctor Mary Helen Imordino Yang, uh, the professor and director of the USC Center for Effective Neuroscience. Development, Learning, and Education, or CANDLE. I bring up CANDLE because you can find out more about uh, the latest in this study by going to candle.usc.edu. Dr. Yang, thanks for being with us. a fake friend. We want intimate friends we can trust, talk to, rely on. People who will understand us. People who will laugh with us. But in an age of Facebook friends and Instagram followers and superficiality, how do we deepen these forms with sincere connections, sincere friendships. Well, joining us for International Friends Day today is friendship expert Shasta Nelson. Shasta's authored a lot of books about friendship. She's also the founder of GirlfriendCircles.com. She was uh, Facebook's media spokesperson and friendship expert for Friends Day in 2018. She's with us to talk about going beyond the superficial and really connecting with people we call our friends. Welcome, Shasta. 
Thank you. That's such a great topic. Love it. I love it. It's a great topic because we all want deeper connections. We're being told all the time uh, through research and science that, you know, it's it's the connection that's important, not the number of Facebook friends and things that you have. Um, and in your book, this really got our attention. You talk about how most of us probably have intimacy gaps in our life. So talk about what some of examples of intimacy gaps we might have. Yeah, it's such a great awareness. When I've been studying loneliness, a lot of people didn't identify with it initially because they were like, oh, no, I'm around people all day or I have great people skills or I have friends. And we actually have a hard time sometimes identifying that feeling of recognizing that we're lonely and it's not from lack of interaction, but it's from lack of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And we know that when we can say, you know, wow, I don't know who to call and share this part of me with, or I don't feel like this part of me is being seen, or I don't know that I feel completely safe in these relationships, or would they really be there for me if I really needed them. Um, And so we start feeling like I could, I have people to go socialize with, or I have Mm -hmm. what we'd call a fun group or, you know, golf group or girls night out or something. And I know people from work and I'm friendly, but like the question is how loved and supported do you feel? And when you ask yourself that question and, and saying, wow, I could use a little more love in that, in that place, that's where that's the intimacy gap. It's us saying, I want something that feels a little closer, a little safer, a little more enjoyable. Yeah. So did you coin the phrase frentimacy? I did because I was on a campaign for a couple of years to just talk about how we need more intimacy in our lives outside of romance. But of course, every time I use the word intimacy, no yeah. matter how I kept trying, they were like, <laughs> sex, sex. And I was like, no, no. And I was like, no, that's the whole point is that that's not, those are not synonymous. We need so much more intimacy, platonic intimacy in our lives. So finally, I coined the word <laughs> to yeah. open a new folder in our head. So, so tell people how you define frentimacy. So frentimacy is any relationship where two people both feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. And so um, we can have different levels of that. And I teach different uh, kind of depths of that. We would want that in all healthy friendships, even on lower levels of relationships. We want to both feel seen. Uh, We want to understand each other. We want to feel like we get each other, that we feel witnessed. We want to have fun together. We want it to be satisfying, to be enjoyable. Uh, to laugh, to get the reward of friendship. And that third thing is we want it to feel safe. We need it to feel trustworthy. We need it to feel reliable. We need to feel like it's consistent and there. So those are the three three things that we measure the health of any relationship by. And so uh, we want vulnerability, we want positivity, and we want consistency. And those three things together make up that definition of we both want to feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. So if we both want us to... We both want these things, and then what keeps us from from having them and having deepening frentimacy? It's a great question, and I've been surveying you know thousands and thousands of people on this, and I have a frentimacy quiz that I have on my website. If anyone's interested in doing that at shastanelson.com, mm-hmm. and it will ask you to take you know kind of an inventory of your friendships and how you show up in your friendships, and will give you a score in positivity, consistency, and vulnerability. Because the answer to your question is, it depends on. It's different for each of us. For some of us, we have high consistency and high positivity, which mm-hmm. means we see each other regularly and we have fun together. But if for like for a lot of men's friendships specifically, we've modeled and taught men to do friendship in that way, but they often lack vulnerability. We have not done a really great job of giving permission, modeling, and encouraging vulnerability in men's friendships. And so that would be the area that would need to be increased to make the biggest difference, perhaps for some relationships. Um, other relationships, uh, we have a lot of relationships where it might be high in consistency and high in vulnerability, where we are we know a lot about each other and we've shared a lot and mm-hmm. we are interacting a lot, but we like the positivity's dropped out. It feels draining. It feels exhausting. We're not having fun. It's like just been hard. It's, it's uh, depressing. <laughs> and so we need to actually increase the positivity in our relationships. So you, when you start seeing all three, the question then becomes, what will help uh, Lisa improve her friendships might look different than what Richie needs to do, which is look different than what Shasta needs to do. Yeah. And it's really the bigger question is which of these three positivity, consistency, or vulnerability would make the biggest difference if you were to focus on that and, and build that up in your friendships. But certainly during life, you know, you have different uh, things to give, different kind amounts of time or positivity or, you know, you know, your, yeah. your, our lives uh, feel you know, full in these areas, even if we know an area is lacking, but we maybe uh, are not in the in the in the right uh, maybe mind frame or commitment to do it. Why should we still make an effort? Why does it matter? 
yeah, it matters so much. And I just get, this gets me on my soapbox. I could do like <laughs> an up. hour. I'll, I'm, I'll give you a hand. I'll give you a hand. Come on. Get come on up like, there. Be careful what you're offering, Richie. I could be up there for an hour being like, here's all the research. Well, you no, don't have an hour. <laughs> it's like, it's truly, and I'm not exaggerating here. When we look at the studies from a health perspective, there is very few things that matter. If anything, maybe sleep, but even your sleep is improved by healthy relationships. Like loneliness messes up your sleep. But uh, beyond that, relationships, like when you look at what what helps you survive cancer, relationships, more than uh, any other factor. When we look at what helps reduce stress, relationships. When we look at longevity, relationships. When we look at mental health, relationships, immune systems, relationships. And across the board, we've been told that it's our health, that it's, our, it's related to our diet and doing more sit-ups and doing kale smoothies. And, you know, we have a whole list wow. of things that we think are really important. And uh, truly, if you have healthy lifestyle habits and feel connected, those are the best combination. But there's studies out there that show if you have to choose between those two, if you have to choose between taking care of your loneliness and taking doing healthy lifestyle habits, mm-hmm. you're better off dealing with the, the, with the loneliness. Mm. That is doing wow. more damage. To feel lonely or disconnected damages your health the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's twice as harmful as being obese. And it's the, does the equivalent damage on your body as being a lifelong alcoholic. So across the board, wow. you're, this, is, this is the issue. And I'm just shocked that we haven't talked about this more and really, 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 really believe the research because the data is super clear. We're talking with Shasta Nelson about the importance of, uh, of friendships, of, of relationships, of connectivity with those around us. I want to not necessarily push back, but most of this nation is lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk statistics, I think they say mm-hmm. that we went from a, a standard of like 2.7 friends to like 1.6 friends mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. There are probably a lot of people listening to this who if they if you ask them who are your friends would not be able to answer a single name what what can those people do like how how do as adults do we now nurture these relationships uh, that we haven't for a long time or create friendships that that don't even exist Yes, it's a, such an important question. And you are right. Right now we're showing about half of us are saying we don't even know who we would confide in if we want. Like we don't have somebody to confide in. So absolutely, the loneliness is palpable um, in our country and in a lot of Western countries. And actually we're seeing it just in more and more countries. So the most important thing that we need to be doing is looking at who we know already, even if you don't know them well, even if they're loose ties, like where can you show up in your life more consistently to help strengthen some of those ties? And so very few of us are going to be really excited about initiating dinners out with people we don't know and like making big plans. Mm -hmm. So the easiest thing to do, because consistency is one of the three requirements of healthy relationships, the most important and easy thing we can do is figure out who we are already consistent with, like at work, at church, at um, at our kids' school, at that association that we're part of, and and or decide where we want to be consistent and say, okay, I'm going to join that network. I'm going to join that that uh, sports group. I'm going to join that. Uh, community there. And I'm going to be consistent for the purpose of building relationships. And eventually, we need to build our relationships and increase our consistency outside of those networks. We want to do that one-on-one. But initially, the most important thing you can do is commit to being somewhere consistently. And then once you're starting to see the same faces over and over and over, that's where you can start bringing in the other two requirements of all relationships, which is positivity. So what can I do to to express gratitude to this person? How can I give compliments? What can I do to bring laughter? What what kindness can I show? What, uh, what's, you know, how can I remember their name and make them feel good? So yeah, we want to bring the joy and the positivity. And then that third thing is vulnerability. We want to start asking questions and being curious about their lives and starting to get to know them. And we want to make sure we're sharing a little bit about ourselves and we want to pick up on that next time and like get to know them a little bit more. And so I can guarantee anybody that if you practice the three requirements of relationship, positivity, consistency, and vulnerability, we can guarantee you will bond with people. There's, it doesn't even matter who the people are at the end of the day. You don't have to be so judgmental about do, do our lives look the same? Do we have enough in common? At the end of the day, if you practice these three things, you will feel closer to people and you will bond. Uh, it seems to me that consistency is is what you are proposing is the first step for those who may think, ah, you know, I'm an adult and it, it and and I'm trying to find more friends as an adult. It, would that be it correct is. and assume? So, it so is. as we are looking, uh, you know, of, of who to invest that in, or you know, who to reciprocate that with, can you talk a little bit more about the qualities of a great friend? 
Yeah. I mean, we could just keep it easy and say the qualities of a great friend are somebody who does these three requirements. I mean, it's somebody who's showing up in your life that you can rely on. Um, it's somebody who at the beginning that showing up doesn't have to mean, you know, it shouldn't mean, uh, doing everything for you and showing up when, uh, right. when everything, but, but it just means simply <laughs> like day. putting the phone down and looking at you when we're talking. It means like smiling and making eye contact, you know, it's like being reliable in that interaction. Um, and it's somebody who practices positivity. And I really want to clarify positivity does not mean what we're talking about. It doesn't mean we only talk about positive things, but it means how do we leave the other person feeling after our interaction? Mm. And the research shows we have to have five positive interactions for every negative feeling or interaction in order to keep a relationship healthy. So our job is to make a lot more, a lot more deposits than withdrawals. And, um, and then somebody who's willing to be seen that vulnerability piece, you know, can we ask questions? Can we share ourselves? And at the end of the day, that is what makes for a healthy friend. All the rest of it is honestly examples of how we do those three things. So some of us might mm-hmm. say, I, lo- I want a funny friend. Well, that's right. an example of positivity. I We would say, I want a friend who's there for me. Well, that's an example of consistency. You know, so everything else when we talk about what we want in friendship is an example or an outcome of one of these three things. Hey, Shasta, how do you do with this? You know, it, relationships ebb and flow. And it's amazing <laughs> when I'm writing a book and I'm talking about certain friendships. Yeah. And then, you know, eight, eight, nine months later, when the book's coming back in my lap for editing, and I'm just like, oh, wait, that person's moved away. And I'm not that close anymore. Like, oh, wait, this person. And it's so funny to see the the ebb and flow of relationships. So I'm very, very, very committed to my friendships. And uh, I don't think you can read the research and not be practicing it as much as you possibly can. And I live in a transient area in San Francisco hmm. where people move away. And I'm like considering making people sign contracts that they're going to stay here, <laughs> be my friend for 10 years. Well, how do you deal with so. that, though? Of, of You may be committed to consistency and vulnerability yes. and positivity. But yes. That doesn't necessarily mean everyone else in your life is. How do you yes. adjust to that sort of ebb and flow, as you call it, or, you know, people going through different phases of their lives, whatever you want to call it? Yep. Yep. No, I, I think it's important to have, I'm very much a a, somebody who teaches that we need to have a circle of friends because anytime you're expecting every one person to be there, it's just too vulnerable of a relationship. Like they, it's fragile. People move, they go through stuff. They're caring for aging parents. They're having kids. And so I'm often somebody who is quick to say, if you're starting to feel resentful toward a friend for not Mm -hmm. being there for you, it's often not a sign that she's or he is a bad friend, but it's often a sign that you don't have enough friends. And so that we really do need to have a, you know, my goal is to have five to 10 friends who are the relationships that we are journeying life together. And those might not be all 10 that I'm confiding in on a regular basis, but they're people that I could and that I would be there for. And so it's, there is an ebb and flow that certain mm-hmm. times there's a couple people that I might be closer to and see more frequently. Um, but yeah, my goal is to have a healthy community of people that I can rely on and, and that they can rely on me and that we're really showing up in that way. But it is, it's tricky. We live in a world that does not, we live in a world right now that is not oriented to relationships being what we need the most, even though the research keeps showing that we are very much caught up in productivity and consumerism and uh, achievement. And we keep thinking those are the things that are going to make us, leave us feeling happiest and most proud at the end of the day. And, um, and we always know, we always, everyone always says on your deathbed, the things you regret, like we know it, but we don't know it. (laughs) We aren't really living our lives like we believe the data. Do you think that the deeper the connection, that the longer the friendship will last? Typically, yes. So here's two statistics that are interesting. One is that we are replacing half our close friends every seven years. So that means uh, if you, if you, Lisa, were confiding in five or six people right now that you kind of felt like were the people you were closest to, chances sure. are high that two or three of them were not the people you were calling and confiding in seven years ago. Yeah. And chances are high that seven years from now, you might be confiding in somebody you haven't even yet met. That's you know? really and interesting because so, yeah, looking so. back, I can look back and say, yeah, absolutely, that, that has happened. Yeah. And, and, and there's different feelings, right? Of like regret or, or Mm -hmm. confusion about, well, why is that? But when you kind Mm -hmm. of accept it as sort of the ebb and flow in life, then it makes the future not seem so like, oh, who will be there? Who won't? Yeah. So, so to some degree, when your question is like the people I'm closest to, will they last the longest? And I would say it depends on if you're closest to them in one context, if you're only closest to them when we're at work or because our kids are on the same volleyball team or because we go to the same church or we live in the same neighborhood, Mm -hmm. then those relationships are probably not as likely to make it once that context changes. So once we no longer work at the same job, live in the same neighborhood, have our kids on the same team, then those relationships are often the ones that don't survive the long term. The ones who survive the long terms are the ones who have practiced 
practice being friends outside of one context so that even if we don't work together anymore, we're still used to getting together and going hiking. And even if our kids aren't on the same team, that's okay because we still like each other and we're not only, we're not relying on only seeing each other at the games. We're actually getting together and doing stuff as families, you know? So those are the relationships that will make it. Um, yeah, we want, and the other statistic I was going to share with you yeah. just came out of university of Kansas a year ago. And I find it fascinating that, uh, a researcher did study there to identify how long it took to feel close to somebody and people self-reported when they moved to a new area, it took 50 hours or r- roughly five zero wow. to go from a stranger to what they would call a casual friend. And then it took 80 to hundred hours before they said they, we felt like we were friends and then 200 hours before somebody felt like they were best friends. Wow. And so I know, so I, those were higher numbers than I expected, but I've always been teaching that we, that it takes time to get to know each other. Even if you instantly know you want to be friends, you right. still have to put in the hours to get to know each other and build your pattern and figure that all out. So I'm a big fan of like, once you've made that investment with somebody, if you've already put in a hundred, 150 hours, yeah. like you're way better off, like, <laughs> like taking care of that investment than going and starting over all the time. <laughs> uh, Shasta, one more question before we let you go. Um, in an effort for me to be a healthier individual, will you be my friend? <laughs> She didn't, uh, you just listen, listen I was, to what she said. You got to put in like 200 hours. I know. I was going to say, are you flying here? Are we doing right. lunch or what? <laughs> well, it depends very much on your answer right now. <laughs> well, I can promise you this. We can always be friendly with each other. And if you want to hang out with me, then we can develop a friendship. That is a wise, <laughs> wise answer. Shasta Nelson is a friendship expert, author of Frentimacy, How to Deepen Friendships for Lifelong Health and Happiness, and founder of GirlfriendCircles.com. Thanks for being with us, Shasta. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much. For many, the holidays represents a time of tradition and cheer. But for many others, the holidays are a sensitive time that bring back pain and illicit loneliness. This sadness is commonly known as the holiday blues. Today, we've invited psychologist Dr. Kristen Bianchi on the show to explain why we get the holiday blues, how we can cope with them, and how we can help our suffering loved ones during this time. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. Can you explain what the holiday blues are and why it is that we feel them, especially during such a traditionally cheerful time? Sure. So we refer to the holiday blues as a a set of negative emotions that get reliably triggered um, during the holiday season. So what we typically mean by that is beginning at Thanksgiving through the winter holidays and into the new year. Um, And so often these feelings are characterized by loneliness, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Um, feelings of longing, yearning, disappointment, inadequacy, sadness, grief, anxiety. Um, You know, so it it can look a little different for each person, um, but Mm -hmm. it's basically, you know, a cluster of feelings that are associated with this time of year. It's, it seems that many of us can feel a little extra sensitive, um, you know, during the holidays. Why is that? So there are many reasons for that. But in large part, there is so much perceived pressure for how we should be feeling, should be acting, what our lives should be like, um, you know, and that is reinforced, you know, certainly through commercials. Um, certainly through Hollywood, the movies, TV shows, and social media has really mm-hmm. hammered home this idea that, um, that this is what's ideal, uh, and it's a carefully edited ideal. And let's be honest, mm-hmm. you know, most of us aren't gonna, <laughs> aren't gonna check all those boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it you know, almost invariably elicits this, these feelings of inadequacy and something that we call upward social comparison, wherein we're looking at other people in a way that places them above us. So we're feeling lesser than, and it's thinking, ah, look, they're so good at this. They're so good at life. Their home is beautiful. Their house is beautiful. You know, name anything. And uh, it can have us feeling, um, you know, lesser than. I think is the best way to put it. So if I understand then, 
the root of the problem is that we have these expectations. So if we can sort of root out these expectations, it's going to go a long way to kind of diminish the holiday blues. Absolutely. I think at the very least, it can, you know, perhaps turn the dimmer switch on a mm -hmm. little bit for them. So just remembering that regular life doesn't stop just because it's the holidays. So whatever stressors we're carrying, it's not like we can just put them down. It, you know, if we have a loved one who's sick, um, if we're grieving, if we have a great deal of stress related to work, you know, bearing in mind that we're, we're not the only ones who are experiencing that. And in fact, it, you know, just about everybody has something going on, uh, you know, around this time of year. Um, and, just because they're not advertising it um, or, you know, just because they're showing us, you know, the highlight reel, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, remembering that it's edited, it, it doesn't mean that we are alone. So, so just remembering that, that, that everything that we're seeing is very carefully edited and much of it is designed, you know, to encourage buying if we're looking at commercials and TV. Um, well, lowering your expectations is one thing, but I feel like we need more, <laughs> you know, like a, more sure. help or structure or uh, skills in order to combat the these holiday blues. Definitely. Um, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so we can have something in mind uh, and put it into context, but that doesn't necessarily change how we're feeling. Right. Because um, it's everywhere. Yeah. Like you're saying, right. just, you know, right. uh, these expectations or these commercials yeah. or, yeah. yeah, we, we can't hide from the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what, what we encourage is to try as best you can to stick to somewhat of a routine, um, you know, to really prioritize sleep um, because we know that once our sleep is compromised, we are much more vulnerable to anxious and depressed thinking. Um, we do encourage trying trying to exercise where possible. Um, I know I, I bring that up all the time, but it really does it really does go a long way in in helping us. Um, it not only helps our bodies, but it does help our thinking. Um, people don't realize the impact that it has on our brains um, and our moods. Um, it, you know, trying to maintain some degree of social support. Um, it doesn't have to be connected to the holidays. So you could, you know, spend time with friends um, or family, you know, in a more neutral setting. Um, you know, bearing in mind that there's Thanksgiving, there are the, you know, again, the winter holidays that each person may celebrate in accordance with their cultural and mm -hmm. faith traditions. Um, but there is also time in between those um, where you can do something, you know, completely different or, or neutral. And sometimes that can be helpful. Um, and I think the last piece that I would recommend is, you know, if, if you do drink alcohol um, to think about limiting intake or maybe even cutting it out um, just because we know that while it can function as a, as a social lubricant for some people, um, it does also have a downstream depressing effect on our nervous system. Um, and as it exits our body, it also contributes to physical feelings of anxiety. And so that can just, you know, if we're already not feeling great, that can just worsen those, those feelings. When I think of the holidays, uh, one of the challenges I, I, I feel like for me and for a lot of people is when you're doing those holidays of firsts and whether mm, it's your yes. first uh, your first Christmas being divorced yes. or your first Christmas with mom or dad being, uh, you know, having passed yeah. on. Um, those are, are really difficult. And try as we might, we don't know what may and, you know, use the buzzword trigger us to sure. to have those holiday blues. Right. What can we do in those particular situations? Sure. Um, so, you know, in in this instance, when we're grieving, we really the healthiest stance that we can take is to lean in um, for for as hard as that is. Uh, grief is is really a mirror of of love uh, and it is a way to, you know, honor the relationships that that we had. Um, we recognize that 
that grief comes in waves. And so if we run from it and try to avoid it, it it's, it's going to it's going to come up on us, right? But if we lean in, feel what we feel, and allow it to pass, and then be replaced with other emotions as something that's fluid, it helps us manage it um, a little bit better. Mm. Uh, I think if we're looking at, you know, at a death, um, if there are ways that we can honor the memory of the the person or people uh, who have who have died um, in a way that helps us to feel connected to them, that that does celebrate their life, that can also be a helpful way to navigate that. Um, but I, you know, I think our healthiest stance that we can take is the most counterintuitive and paradoxical one, which is again, to, to actually lean in um, and to allow it to be without trying to change it too much um, and recognizing it as fluid and dynamic. We're talking with Chris Bianchi about uh, holiday blues and how we can help combat them um, and and be prepared for them a little bit more so that they don't really sneak up on us too much. Um, We've been talking a lot about how we can do that for ourselves. If we know that someone close to us, a loved one, is experiencing holiday blues, what's the best way that we can support them? So it really depends on each individual. Um, so we're going to use our judgment based on, you know, what we know of the person. But, you know, the the best thing, one of the best things that we can do is to let the person know that we are thinking about them, that we're holding them in mind, that we're here and present for them in whatever capacity we might need, they may need or want us to be. Um, and letting them know that they are, are not forgotten. Um, you know, I think we can also be sensitive in how we're talking about our own experiences. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't feel guilty if we're enjoying the holidays and someone else is, you know, is, is really suffering, you know, that we have, we have the right to, you know, to feel how we're feeling. But, you know, if we're talking to someone whom we know is, is going through a hard time, you know, we may, use some restraint in terms of, you know, how we're describing what, what we're up to, what we're doing. <laughs> a um, little sensitivity <laughs> right, doesn't yes. hurt. No, I'm having no. the best time. <laughs> I don't think that there's been a more magical Christmas <laughs> yeah. than the one. Yeah, you're oh, like, okay. Gosh. okay. Oh, dear. <laughs> turn, uh, turn it down a couple uh, notches. Okay. Yeah. No, but it, but it's true. Having a little sensitivity can go a long way. When, those, when, we, have, when we have those people in our life that um, – we just don't know what to say to them. Man, yeah. we love them like crazy. Mm-hmm. And we know that they're grieving. We know that they're hurting or, you know, that we maybe we don't have any idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. How, 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 you know, you, you mentioned that we, we, that we lean into the conversation, that we are there mm-hmm. for them. If we just are not great conversationalists, how can we convey mm-hmm. that love that we have for them? We can, we can be present for them. We can demonstrate it through action. Um, and again, that can take different forms. It, it depends on, um, you know, what people respond to. So some people, if they're struggling, you know, may want to do something and, and not talk about anything, you know, they may want a distraction from, you know, whatever they have going on in their lives. And so we can be that person who, you know, takes them out to, you know, go watch, uh, go watch a game, um, it, you know, Conversely, if, you know, if they're not in a place where they're feeling up for going out, we can visit with them. And again, um, we, we don't necessarily have to be talking and saying magic words because there aren't any, right? But, but we can be present and we can convey that we care, you know, again, through, through our actions, through our company um, and I think I've said this before, but by bearing witness and and just being there, that in and of itself shows mm-hmm. I see you, mm-hmm. I, I acknowledge you, and I'm I'm with you. So I stand in solidarity beside you, um, and I think that you know can really go a long way because ultimately, if there were magic words, my gosh, you know we'd have <laughs> right. we'd be we'd be sharing them yeah. with uh, with the public. But uh, that's a great question. 
What advice do you have for those who are typically feeling depressed and down after the holidays are over and, and you have to go back to real life? So we like to remind them that it's like coming back from a vacation. Um, and in the same way that it takes us a little, it might take us a week, maybe even two, to adjust when we return from a vacation. That is common after the holidays. We, it, it, It's common to feel a little down, especially when the days are short, it's cold, um, and there aren't really any, you know, save New Year's. Um, there aren't really any holidays in January. Um, but just to recognize that in the same way that we bounce back after a vacation, that to use more of a resilience model mm-hmm. and to say, you know, we you know, we, I've done this before. And also recognizing that if the holidays weren't time limited, they wouldn't be special. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's true. And so that, you know, is part of what, why, you know, why we celebrate them. And so just, you know, if we are feeling down that the holidays are over in some ways, it might be a sign that we really enjoyed them. So feeling grateful for the ways in which the holidays were special and meaningful and enjoyable. Is this something you've ever struggled with? Coming back from the coming, holiday? Coming back from the holidays and just feeling the blues or during the holidays, just mm-hmm. feeling those those deep, deep blues. Sure. Uh, uh, absolutely. You know, I, I think you can't get through life without, without grief. Um, and I'm no different in that regard uh, in terms of, you know, having holidays be reminders of, of, of loved ones who are no longer with me physically. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, it can be a tough adjustment coming, coming back as well, if it's been, you know, a particularly fun stretch. Um, but also in mental health, this is a very, very busy time of year for us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in, in many ways, I'm always working to, To mm-hmm. some degree, and I think a lot of other mental health professionals would probably say the same. Um, you know, so w- we take our our hats off uh, when we can. Um, but this is a time of year in which crises abound. Um, so I guess in some regards, I'm I'm used to having my clinical hat either on or not too far away during this stretch of the year. It, it's bear, uh, worth bearing repeating. Uh, if people find themselves in a crisis situation around the holidays, what's the best advice you have for them? Uh, so the the best advice that I have is to seek professional help. Um, you know, obviously, in, if they're in imminent danger and are, aren't in danger of, of harming themselves, then we want to go straight to the emergency room, to the nearest one. Um, we do also recommend crisis hotlines, 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. Um, that's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's lifeline. Um, and you can call, uh, you know, for any sort of crisis. Mm-hmm. They also have a text number. It's 741741. Um, sometimes that's an easier way to reach out to get through um, a, a crisis and recognizing that crises are temporary, but our job during a crisis is to find a bridge to get through it, to get over it. And the best way we can do that is is by getting professional help. Dr. Kristen Bianchi practices at the Center for Anxiety and Behavioral Change in Rockville, Maryland. You can follow her on Twitter at Bianchi Kristen for more information on bettering your mental health. Thanks for being with us. 